Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, yes, we've got lots of things to offer you this morning. Politics with your Wheaties. And uh, yes, you've got to be reminded, of course, that Radiothon's coming and uh, Radiothon program for Solidarity Breakfast is on the 16th, at the, the uh, Saturday of the last week of our drive to get the $250,000 that 3CR needs to keep on air and uh, go on for another year. Uh, uh, we're uh, going to take you to Walker Street in Northcote first up in this morning because uh, that's where they met in a rally, a much larger rally than the uh, last one that they had. Uh, uh, well, it turned out to be 12 months ago, but uh, I thought it was only six. Time flies when you're having fun. Uh, this is all part of the... Uh, a government's desire, a desire to sell off public land and to uh, destroy public housing. Uh, Walker Street Estate in Northcote, a beautiful place right beside the river there. Uh, high price land, really. Uh, we went there and uh, took uh, some um, account of why some people were there and then listened to some of the speeches. Uh, we'll do that first up on the program. We're then going to, then going to go and look at uh, the uh, so-called plans for uh, major changes to the road systems in uh, Melbourne by looking at uh, the uh, north-east link, uh, the east-west tunnel that was lost uh, during the Liberals' uh, uh, debacle government and now we're moving into the Labor framework of uh, change. Uh, we're going to have a yarn with Ian Huntley about uh, what he considers to be uh, our, uh, plans that have very little strategy involved. Uh, then we're going to look at uh, the uh, minimum wage announcement that came out on Friday. Uh, it's increased by about 64 cents an hour for the lowest paid workers in Australia. That was what the Fair Work Commission gave out. Uh, there's a bit of dissent about uh, it not being enough. So we'll have a yarn with uh, Don Sutherland about it. But uh, some important messages before we do. 
3CR Radiothon 2018 Fight for Your Mic. The 3CR annual Radiothon fundraiser is almost here. From June the 4th to the 17th, we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 039419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. Come and see Bart Willoughby's album, Resonance, live on June the 2nd at Fitzroy Town Hall. Doors open at 7pm and show starts at 7.30. Featuring all tracks from Bart Willoughby's latest album, Resonance, a combination of reggae, jazz, opera and Middle Eastern music in celebration of Reconciliation Week. Saturday, June the 2nd. Tickets available through tickyboo.com.au. Check out our Facebook page or website for further details. A 3CR supporter. And, of course, Reconciliation Week uh, finishes tomorrow, but it should be in your heart all year round. Uh, Mabo Day, that's uh, Sunday the 3rd of June. You're invited to go to Federation Square at 12pm to uh, celebrate uh, the uh, anniversary of Mabo Day. Then there's uh, um, further celebrations at uh, 2 to 5 at the Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church. That's 110 Grey Street, East Melbourne, for an afternoon of music, singing, conversation and afternoon tea to celebrate the 26th anniversary of Mabo Day. Now let's go down to Walker Street in Northcote where there was a rally last Saturday uh, to uh, raise awareness and uh, express concern about uh, the Labor government's public, misnamed public housing, housing renewal plan. I'm from uh, 3CR. Can you tell me why you're here today? Um, oh, well, I just um, think that we shouldn't be selling off public housing to private developers, that we should be keeping it in the hands of the government because once you've sold out off land that becomes so expensive they'll never be able to buy it again and we, the government needs to own the public housing, not sell it to private developers. What role do you think uh, public housing plays in keeping society stable? Well, you've got to have a place for everybody to live and there's people who can't afford... The house prices are so high they can't afford... You know, I've been trying to help a particular person who's homeless and I can't, I'm having a lot of trouble finding anywhere for him to live. He's sleeping out and that's very cold in this weather. We just need a lot more public housing, I think. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, the government yeah. uh, often says that, uh, one, this is about public housing renewal and they also say that... Uh, they're providing places. Nobody w- will be without a place. But when you look into it, like you've been doing, yeah. it's actually not quite the case, is it? No, I think that in this public housing, some of them are three-bedroom places and they've got families, they need three bedrooms and they're going to be replacing them with one or two-bedroom apartments which and they'll have to move out and they've got all their family connections in this area and you know they'd be probably moved out in the outer suburbs. Yeah. yeah, it's a, pro- a problem, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Thank you. Oh, so you so you live in Northcote. Yeah. So you're really a bit concerned about yeah. this. Yeah, but um, 
I'm in the Greens. Um, I think Lydia's supposed to be speaking. She's the member for Northcote. I think she's speaking today. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. No. She's been very strong on this yet. issue. <laughs> yeah. Well, She'll turn up. Why are you here? Yeah. Uh, I live in the local area and I'm interested in what's going on in this particular site, but I'm also interested in the sell-off of public lands when um, I don't think the community is getting back good value for what they're doing. It's an amazingly pretty place, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's in a wonderful site and it's got huge potential. Uh, you could see why they might want to do something with it, but they should be looking at a, a much more... Um, community-friendly sort of approach than what they're, they're... I'm surprised there aren't more people here because it really is such a serious issue and it's such a beautiful day that uh, you'd expect more people to be concerned about an event like this. Yeah, and as I was saying, uh, this is actually bigger than the last one, which means that more people are becoming aware. How long ago was that? That was uh, about six months ago. Right, OK, and maybe next time, another six months, it'll be bigger again. Well, maybe it will be an election issue. Yeah, I think it could well be. Yeah, because I, I know uh, local people are concerned about it, but they're not. They haven't turned up today. Yeah. Well, let's hope you can inform them. Yeah, we'll work on it. Yeah. <laughs> today, I'm from 3CR. Do you want to tell me, if your dog will let me, um, why you're here today? Oh, I just um, I, I really disapprove of the public sell-off of perfectly good um, housing that could be renovated and is low and fits into low lying and fits fits into the um, in, into the environment of the you know Victorian houses around around here and and it's just d disgusting I, I really um, we, we've tried to protest um, going to inquiries and so forth no, no notice has been taken it at, at the inquiries, very sensible um, reasons were given by a lot of people. It's as if it's just not a d democracy. I'm from 3CR. I was wondering, do you want to tell me why you're here today? Well, I'm here to support uh, <clears throat> the people who are being kicked out of their homes. Uh, it's disgraceful, you know, like we were short of. Uh, public housing now and they're selling it off left, right and centre. I don't know where it stops. Do you live around here or did you hear about it? How did you hear about uh, it? Oh, I just heard it on uh, social uh, networks in home. Mm. Yeah. So uh, I've just come down to put another body on the line. Yeah, that's good. Um, you're a relatively old, elderly fellow. Uh, do you have a long view on this about public housing? Oh, it's been. Yeah, I've, I've thought about this and heard about it for many years. You know, the, it's a slow thing that's happened over the years, and uh, it's going to stop now because we're going to make it stop. <laughs> Thank you. G'day, I'm from 3CR. Can you tell me why you're here today? Certainly. I'm Anne Laver. I'm from the Darabin Ratepayers Association and I'm in inter interested in um, transparency and governance and uh, rights for the, our local community. Now, this is a very big issue, isn't it, this cellar? Yes, it's a very big issue for the local community and all these people will be displaced and they'll be fragmented and they'll have nowhere to go 
and no support for them and they probably won't be able to come back to this area because it would be far too expensive for them to be able to get back. And not only that, there's not going to be enough room, there's going to be major majority of one bedroom and two bedroom apartments which are not big enough for the families. Now you're a ratepayer, you don't feel that you've been consulted at all about this? Um, not, not certainly not by the Labor government. Um, the the, the Darwin Council have been very supportive of the community, and I, and I think that's really good that they have done that, and the Greens Party as well. Um, but I think the Labor government are not listening to what the community wants, and it's not just in Darwin; it's all over the all the public housing throughout Melbourne, and it's a disgrace. And they've got all the money; they've got, you know, a, a budget surplus of you know, I don't know, a billion dollars or something or other. So why can't they reinvest it into public housing? Thanks. You're welcome. Howard, uh, are you happy? This is uh, bigger than uh, rally than the last time. I am always happy at rallies. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a big one and it's, it's still early days. It's still building up. We, we actually uh, were down at uh, the ALP State Conference this morning um, handing out leaflets to the delegates as they are arriving. Um, so that was good coverage. Uh, We've got the issue out to who know I don't know how many delegates there are maybe a few thousand ALP delegates. And Any response from them? Um, yeah, they were generally polite. Um, only a small number were actually hostile. One of the uh, sitting Labor MPs told someone to get a life, but apart from that, um, you know, we no one really stopped to talk because they were on the way in. They were busy, you know, had their minds focused on stuff. But even just getting the information to them is, is something. And um, we spoke to other activists who also had their own protests there for the environment and getting them involved in the campaign. So what I'm actually giving out now is um, the, the network and the other public housing organisations are actually running a campaign at the moment um, because the um, planning powers relating to the, um, the public housing renewal program is in Parliament at the moment. The Greens are going to put up a motion to stop that, to block it, and we need to get the Liberal Party to support that. Now, so, the reason for why they're doing it is that they want to do it uh, without having consultation. Is that right? Yeah, effectively, what's happened at the moment is the public housing renewal program's been held up by the local councils. Most of the local councils, uh, which are connected to the affected estates, have actually opposed it for, because it's you know doing away with public housing, because it's uh, an overdevelopment, reducing local amenity, uh, reducing open space. Um, so to get around that, the state government has actually taken away the powers and given them directly to the minister so that he doesn't have to get the approval of local councils to make the planning amendments. But that, um, that uh, power of the minister is actually subject to the parliament. The parliament can actually block that in the upper house. In the upper house, the Labor Party doesn't have the numbers. The numbers are with the Greens and the Liberals. And those two parties have already blocked um, a similar um, proposal in Ashburton and Preston uh, to stop the Labor Party. So we're trying to get people to um, spend five minutes. All they've got to do is uh, send one email and make four phone calls to the Liberal Party. And if people want the information for that, it's up on our Facebook page. Public Which Housing is? Defence Network Facebook page. Say that again. So the Public Housing and Defence Network page um, has the information about how to lobby to stop the public housing renewal program. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. 
And down at Wilker Street, uh, Northcote, there were some pretty illuminating speeches, and uh, so we'll have a listen to some of them. If you want to involve yourself on the ground today at uh, Grom Place, G-R-O-N-N Place, West uh, Brunswick, Grom Place, West Brunswick, at 2pm, there's going to be a uh, rally. But let's hear some of the speeches. You can fudge press releases, you can talk a whole lot of rot about improving things for public tenants, but you can't fudge the maths. And the maths is that the Public Housing Renewal Program will net Victoria an additional 110 social housing slash public housing units. That's 110 additional units on what currently uh, is on these estates. And for that, uh, Victoria will lose nine whole estates and gain around 2,000 new private properties on that public land. So that's 110 new units for loss of all that land and 2,000 more private units. And this the government can't fudge. Next we have uh, Stephen Jolly. Stephen Jolly is a Yarra City councillor. In his role at the Yarra City he's um, done a lot of work um, on the ground on the estates in uh, in and around Richmond and Collingwood. Um, He's won a number of really significant campaigns with those residents um, he also is you know, centrally involved in um, fights against developers uh, running rampant across the city of Yarra. He's uh, running in the upcoming state elections with the Victorian Socialists uh, for the Northern Metropolitan seat of the Upper House. So welcome, Steve Jolly. Thanks, brothers and sisters. I think here we are a year on from the last rally on this estate. And the reason we're here a year later is that We've done all the right things. We've signed the petitions, we've lobbied the politicians, we've done the surveys, we've made our submissions, we've had our public meetings, and the state government have ignored public housing tenants. And therefore today marks a turning point in the campaign. We've got to move it from a G-rated campaign to an X-rated campaign. We need to put a cog in the spokes of the state government's plans to destroy these 11 estates and hand them over to the greedy developers whose insatiable desire for more profits means they're never satisfied, no matter what they get. We know all the arguments. Witch hunting, poor people, and overwhelmingly people of colour from inner suburbs of Melbourne to outer suburbs of Melbourne, handing over their estates for a song to private developers to put, can you imagine how expensive an apartment will be here on the banks of the creek, overlooking the CBD, and in return we'll get a sprinkling of social housing units, which are not the same as public housing, they're more expensive, you've got fewer rights, they're often run by organisations that have their own agendas, no disrespect to some of the marvellous people who work in social housing, but it's not as good as public housing. And the, and the open space will be lost. We know all the arguments. We know that when these people come back, if they are allowed to come back, because who can trust really the promises of the government, do you think they can just walk into the local school? Because as we know in the inner city, unfortunately, there's a thing called education apartheid. If you're white and you live in Clifton Hill and you're middle class, you can walk into Gold Street Primary School or Spencer Street Primary School where my kids went to, marvelous schools. But as we know from people like Tigus Desta, a single mum from Ethiopia on the Collingwood estate with four kids who took on two more kids when her sister died of bone cancer, who then tried to get her kids in the Gold Street estate, all of a sudden it was full up. 
The Gold Street School, all of a sudden it was full up. This is what these people could potentially find when they come back here in the future. And that is why there's so much fear amongst the people. We've also pointed out the disgusting political um, hypocrisy of the Labour government, by the way, who rely on public housing tenants to hold off the green horde, if I can put it that way, in front of my dear friend Samantha, the leader of the Victorian Greens, because it's public housing tenants more than anyone in the inner city who for a century now have stayed loyal to the ALP, loyally voting year in, year out for the Labour Party. That's changing, but that's historically been the case. And look how they're treated now. We know all the arguments. That's why we're here a year later. And what's happened last week with the state budget or a fortnight ago is salt was rubbed in the wounds. A $300 billion budget where all of a sudden they could find money, almost half a billion for a new prison in Lara, half a billion for the Etihad Stadium, now going to be called the Marvel Stadium, I believe. $3.2 billion. There's not a road in Melbourne that the state government don't think is worth fixing. And, do you, and also, you know, even a little bit for good things like we've just got a school about to be finished or is finished in Richmond. Jeff Kennett closed 350 schools on the eve of the largest population explosion in this city since the gold rush. What a genius he was. Labour's come in and said, we'll fix that. We won't give you 350 back. We will give you five or six. We want, we want credit for that. But do you think, and that's a good thing, you know, notwithstanding the fact it's not enough, but do you think they went to Richmond and said, we're going to give you a school, so you've got to pay, you've got to self-fund. You've got to pay a higher tax in Richmond to the state government. Do you think they said that to the people who are going to visit the Marvel Stadium? What they've done is they dipped into their $9 billion surplus, which they've got even after this budget, and they just did what they had to do to try and win this election. And there'll be more largesse handed out to marginal seats over the course of the next few months. But when it comes to public housing tenants on this estate, in Ascot Vale and all the other estates, who are some of the poorest disadvantaged people in this state, there's a different standard. You have to self-fund. If you want a road, they'll build it for you. If you fight hard enough for a school, you'll get it. If you're a big company that wants some deal with the government, they'll give you some tax concessions and even handouts. For public housing tenants, they've said, if you want us to redevelop this estate, you've got to give us all your land. You've got to self-fund. What a disgusting double standard. So it's socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. It's not good enough. It's not just about public housing tenants. If these estates go, it's going to drive up private rental markets. The fewer people in public housing, the more people searching for pri in the private rental market for accommodation, the rents are going through the roof. This is, this is not just a question of us coming here in solidarity with public housing tenants. That's obviously the number one issue. But it's also it's going to affect everybody. The less public housing, the more people in the private rental market, higher rents, it affects everyone. And that's why we need a concrete program, not just to defend public housing, but to limit Airbnb, to have inclusionary zoning. So when all these private apartments are being built, which I work on in the construction industry, we have a percentage of low-cost housing mandated by the state government and councils for every large development. We want to over or have a conversation. We in the Victorian Socialists have raised, let's have a conversation about rent caps which we have in Seattle, in Berlin, in New York, 
but not here in Melbourne. We need a discussion about councils and the state government, not cutting public housing, but building public housing. We want 50,000 public housing units built in the next eight years. That would cost $1.5 billion a year. We think that could be paid for by a tax on developers and private infrastructure, super profits tax. They've made so much from us, it's time they started giving back a bit. A friend of mine, this is going to sound like an oxymoron, but a friend of mine who's a journalist in the Herald Sun said to me, you don't even have to tax them. They've got $9 billion worth of profits. Don't quote me on that, he said, so I won't give you his name. <laughs> These are the type of program that we have to have on housing, on public housing, and link it to every Victorian. Whether you, you, you can't afford to buy a house, whether you're suffering rental stress, whether you're couch surfing, whether you're homeless, or whether you're struggling in public housing. But as I said at the start, and I want to finish on this point, we've tried it the nice way and they're not listening. So we have to now today pledge, in my opinion, to take the struggle to the next level. Obviously in November the 24th, obviously it goes, should go without saying, you should vote for organizations and parties that support public housing. There's only two political parties that I can see here today. That's the Greens and the Victorian Socialists. If there's others that support public housing, in action as well as words, well, fair enough, I haven't seen them yet. But we know that this battle for this estate and Ascot Vale and all the other nine estates will be lost and won before November the 24th. We can't wait till November the 24th. And therefore, we are proposing two things. Number one is that we immediately reach out to Victorian Trades Hall Council, but in particular, the building industry group of construction unions to say that until we have a guarantee from the government that bad public housing is replaced by good public housing and that every resident is promised a right of return, we as construction workers, as unionized construction workers, will not demolish, will not knock down those estates until we have those guarantees. And the second thing is I think we all here today should pledge that if that fails, or if we don't get that, we have to go back to the tried and trusted methods of four years ago. When we stopped the largest road ever been built in this continent, $15 billion on an east-west tunnel, where vast majority of people were going to be dumped into the western suburbs through that tunnel, when they weren't actually going there, it was a total white elephant for the benefit of big infrastructure companies. And we stopped that through community picketing, through a massive campaign of which the steely spine was the community picketing. And therefore we have to say, as young people, as working people, as the community of Melbourne together, that if you think that you can come in and turf out people of colour and poor people from the inner city, and we're just going to stand by and let you do it, you've got rocks in your head. We will pledge to have community pickets here every morning when they turn up with the demolition balls. We will link arms, we will stop construction, we will physically stop any type of destruction of these estates until we get the guarantees that we want. And we will force the government to retreat, like we forced the Liberals to retreat and the Labour to retreat four years ago in the East West Tunnel campaign. This is too important to be left just to election time. We've got to fight on the streets now. And if we do that, I think we can turn this campaign around. We can win 
and we can come back here in a year and two years and see this beautiful estate with these beautiful people, people like Will, who live here, living in this type of public housing, but 20 times better. We've got the money. The state government have got the money. Let's put our hands in their pocket. It's our money. Take it back and start investing it in the public housing that we need. Thanks very much. Now. we've got Fiona Ross. Fiona is a member of the Public Housing Defence Network. She's also a member of Friends of Public Housing. Um, Fiona's a person who's been campaigning around the issues affecting public housing tenants for very many years. She's taken up um, in the past a whole bunch of the smaller attacks that have led up to this attack, which is an unprecedented attack, precedent attack on public housing tenants, um, you know, initiated by any government of any stripe. Um, the Labor government's attack right here, right now, is the biggest we've ever seen in Victoria. Um, Fiona's been centrally involved in the fight against it, and um, I'll welcome Fiona to the mic. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Mark from Ascot Vale Estate. He's my brother. And um, basically, we need to be very, very clear that the major uh, political parties, they do not believe in public housing anymore. I, I just spent yesterday speaking with uh, Martin Foley and basically the time was spent trying to convince us that handing it all over to community housing, also known as social housing, is the way to go. So the agenda is all about privatisation, privatisation of services, privatisation of, of houses, of housing, and a whole lot of rubbish about how public tenants are going to be better off. Well, we're not going to be better off. We need to make sure that public housing stays in public hands and is managed by the government. And all of this sort of shifty nonsense that they're up to, where, where in the end we're going to have no public housing left and we're going to all be scratching our heads and saying, how on earth did this happen? And we'll end up with homeless people like tent cities everywhere. We have to be very, very clear about the threat to public housing, and we have to fight tooth and nail to stop it. Um, because as Mark was saying, once we've lost it, we can't get it back. So um, I'll speak a little bit about the relocation. So every public tenant is being assured that they will come back. But what a lot of people don't know is at the beginning of 2017, we had the head honchos from DHHS visiting all the councils because they want the council support they want this to go through without a hitch. They know that it's, it's huge. They know that it's potentially very unpopular and they want to keep it quiet and they want to transfer it as smoothly as possible. So basically, the head honchos went to councils. They went to key service providers and they said to them that they're only expecting 20% of the public tenants to return and that they were not to go to the press with this, they had to sign confidentiality agreements. So we have got um, sources in councils, pardon me, sources in councils that have told us that as well as key service providers. Now, I think it stinks that the inner circle have been told that they're expecting 20% of the tenants to return. At the same time, the tenants are told that each and every one of them will be returning. So um, one of the crucial things that we're doing at the moment is um, 
you might be aware that over Easter Labor tried, well, Labor passed legislation to remove the council planning of uh, all these estates. So what they want to do is they want to be able to just rubber stamp all of this redevelopment without any kickback from the councils. And um, we need to try to revoke that. So we have um, um, Howard Morossi, he's been handing out some leaflets today. So we advise you to get on board. We need to put pressure on every politician in the upper house that they um, reverse that so that we get the powers back to the council and then we start fighting estate after estate with the help of the councils. And we do it because it's the right thing to do. We want everybody to have a roof over their head and, and stop this bullshit. I can't believe that Australia is, calls itself a democracy and they're succeeding state by state in privatising public housing by stealth and by secrecy. So join the campaign and we'll change things. Thank you. Thanks, Fiona. What Fiona was referring to in, in relation to the government, the government is, um, despite the growing opposition to their plan, has um, been charging ahead, trying to move various sort of regulatory and legal changes um, to ensure that they can proceed with their plan. <clears throat> And last week the Greens announced that they are moving a motion in Parliament which will act to block all of the changes that the government has already tried to put through. So that's a significant step forward for the campaign and we certainly do uh, encourage and demand in fact um, all um, decent members of Parliament to support that motion, to support public housing. Um, but I'll, I'll get up Lydia Thorpe who's the Greens member of the seat of Northcote and she can speak more about what the Greens are doing on that question. I think we need to keep reminding our politicians about what it's really like and the Greens have um, introduced a motion in Parliament to block their decision on taking away the powers of, of councils and we've got 10 days until that vote comes down so the 6th of June is the day that that you know we'll be voting against this um, revocation and, and removing the government's powers and, and putting them back into the hands of our local councils. So we need to put as much pressure on right now till the 6th of June to ensure all of those politicians vote for the right thing and that is the protection of our people that live here and, and all the other estates. And I think one of the most frustrating things for me as a, you know, being in the job for six months and a new politician is knowing that the Labor and Liberal governments take donations from developers. And it's just dodgy. <laughs> like, I, I just can't get over the fact that, um, you know, big donations come from developers. So it's in their best interest to look after the developers. And unfortunately, you know, our most vulnerable people don't, you know, don't match up to what um, we can raise to give the government. And I think that, you know, we're being sold out um, in this state that you know, Aboriginal people are being sold out and, and public housing tenants are being sold out and we really need to, to stand together. I'm going to be calling for this in the treaty process. There's no point in selling off Crown land, public land, while we're talking about a treaty because by the time that, that treaty hits a the table, there'll be nothing left. Yeah, 
Time is ticking. Spend two minutes to save public housing in Victoria. This week, email david.davis at parliament.vic.gov.au. Ring him on 98276655 and tell him to support the motion to block the government's public housing renewal program planning amendment. For more info, emails and phone numbers, see the Public Housing Defence Network's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and another thing that's on the agenda at the moment is a, a grand amount of roads. As Steve Jolly says, there's no, no road in, in uh, Melbourne that the government doesn't think needs fixing. And we've got Ian Huntley on the line talking about what the apparent plan is for Melbourne with these grand plans. G'day Ian, how are you? Oh, good morning, Annie. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Now, we were talking about uh, the uh, overall strategy that the government's got for big roads, and you laughed and said, what strategy? Can you explain explain what, your reaction? Um, yes, I, it's clear that things happen on a project-by-project project basis, and typically they're roads projects rather than public transport or other sustainable transport projects. And they normally emerge, from what I can see, from um, from traffic counts that are made on roads, um, um, big roads and other roads. Authorities from time to time come to the conclusion that a particular road might be congested, um, such as, say, Hoddle Street um, or the Monash Freeway, and their almost reflex action is to actually build another road or add a lane or two to the existing road, rather than to look at things in a more strategic way um, and look at the capability of uh, public transport and other forms of sustainable transport to uh, maintain our mobility in Melbourne. That's broadly what's going on. It's how, how did you doing the sort of things that we've done for the last fifty years as if if the same as if the same formula still applies and it's absurd so you you became particularly interested in this uh, because of uh, changes around your own area right uh, well that was one of uh, one aspect of it um, I mean one of the things that occurs to me is that uh, is that our major transport capability that is our public transport capability is basically a, a radial network from the Melbourne CBD. And um, the reality is, however, that a, a lot of the trips that are made by people today in Melbourne are not radial trips to the CBD at all. I, I would say, however, that the number of trips to the CBD and inner Melbourne are growing very quickly um, as, uh, as the, um, that population centre grows and its business grows. But it's also true to say that um, perhaps most people uh, work and do most of their business relatively close to where they live, and that's typically in the municipality in which they live or perhaps the adjacent municipality. Um, And because we have a, a, a dominant radial network, quite often people that live in Suburban Melbourne aren't really catered for very well at all. Um, I mean, where I live, for example, we've got a good tram service. I'm a bit too far away from a rail service. I'd like to see Doncaster Rail built for that purpose. But if I wanted to 
um, travel south or north of where I live, um, it's very difficult to almost impossible because uh, the services just don't exist. So, so when the government's talking about, uh, they've put ads up at the moment and they're talking about things like the North East Link and the East West Tunnel and, uh, uh, and how it's um, going to take 30 minutes off people's drive times and all this sort of stuff. This is, uh, these are compelling arguments for the people who are stuck in traffic. But uh, why why is this just a a quick fix that's really not going to actually get the result that people are hoping for? Well, our historical experience with new freeways is that they become congested very quickly. Um, uh, I know when we were promised expansions on the Monash Freeway, for example, and we had them, uh, it became congested very quickly. Uh, we've got a project going now you, you'll be aware of called Streamlining Hoddle Street. Yeah. Um, now, that will probably last a few years and Hoddle Street will be congested again. Uh, the Tullamarine Freeway expansion, which is sort of drawing to a conclusion now, um, depending on who you speak to, that may last three to eight years um, before it's, again, congested. So uh, there's something else going on that uh, that our planners or people that portray themselves as planners um, um, are not taking into account, and that's really the fact that travel by motor car is quite space inefficient, and that's a fairly ungainly term, I know, but, I mean, the reality is that most people travelling in peak hour in Melbourne, when people do get angriest about this, uh, basically travelling in a car and they're typically travelling by themselves in a car. Um, I think the figure is 1.1 to 1.2 persons in a car travelling in Melbourne during peak time. Um, but if those people were, say, in a bus, um, you'd have, say, a, perhaps 60 people in that bus Um now, now like, it's interesting yeah. that you're saying these things because uh, you're, what you're doing is thinking about it from the point of view of actually resi- uh, uh, achieving a result. And from the ordinary person's point of view trying to get around, what you're noticing, I'm noticing, is that trams, there's not enough trams. They're too packed. Um, the uh, trains are also packed. Yes. Uh, that uh, you And then another thing that people hardly ever talk about, but which I really notice, is that when they do these large roads, uh, it becomes normalised, but it cuts through communities and those big roads become the only, uh, the ambience of a whole area. You know, you can't get across them. They're uh, an imminent danger. Uh, They they constrict uh, the uh, movements of all the people who live in those places. Uh, passing cars are more important than the amenity of the people who live in those suburbs. Oh, that's, that's, I think that's true. Um, I mean, two of the issues that have not been given su- sufficient consideration, I think, with these large road projects are the, the consequences of things like noise pollution and air pollution um, and even light spillover uh, for people that live in those areas. Um, My understanding is that our standards for what they are are 
um, are rather inadequate compared with some other jurisdictions, even jurisdictions within Australia, I understand. Yeah, it's interesting, and, uh, isn't it? In the... relation to air pollution and noise pollution, and I, I, I predict that this will become a, a much greater issue um, for projects like the North East Link, um, um, the Mordialic Freeway, um, and it certainly was a major issue with the Western Distributor, or now called the Westgate Tunnel, I think, project, which was uh, was before an EES process uh, during uh, the last year or so. Um, and I think those those concerns have, have really been underdone. Well, it's interesting because I, I must say I'm still waiting to see uh, what's going to happen when people notice that the air quality in Southern Cross Station is incredibly terrible. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why that's allowed to happen. But anyway, that's another issue altogether. Yeah, I, mean, that's, I mean, that's one of the issues. I mean, that's basically um, diesel pollution. Yeah, it is, and that's uh, uh, a very important. Uh, that, as I said, that's another. That's a side issue, yeah. and I'm that is a ticking time bomb as far as yes, I'm concerned. But, it, but in the, on the roads as well, uh, Annie, uh, it's it's diesel pollution that's that's a, a significant issue, um, and our um, I mean our truck fleet, uh, which is a, a major source of diesel pollution, um, is very old. That's probably not well enough appreciated, but um, the fact that these trucks are, are quite old on average means they generate much more particular uh, pollution into the atmosphere than would otherwise be the case. Well, this, the is, this is bringing us down to the government, actually, because mm. uh, the government planning and regulation. But one of the yeah. things that's uh, fascinating uh, is that uh, the connection between these plans, big business and government. I mean, I went to a thing where Transurban was actually describing how they've got this plan and they were going to give it to the government as if the government didn't need to create its own policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very concerning, but it's, in a sense, unsurprising. Um, there's, there's a government process that's been in place for some time now. It was certainly in place under the previous government, under the coalition government. And I think before that, um, in Victoria, of, of taking what's called unsolicited bids from uh, private operators, um, which um, means, in my view, that, um, that government policy, government strategic planning is basically now a vacant field because uh, some of these corporations are so so well developed in their ability to bring to government a solution for a problem that the that the government can basically become uh, the captives of these uh, promoters um, who also have quite uh, an effective um, capability to spin these projects to the public as well. Yeah, I mean one of these, one of the earlier ones that strikes me was um, um, was the um, the, uh, the the water treatment plant down at Wontaggi. It's got nothing to do with transport, but uh, but it's the same issue. Stage, but and the government and the and the, uh, and the an overseas operator came to the government of the day and said, "We've got a plan for you." People are people are very concerned about <laughs> about uh, not having sufficient water. 
that certainly galvanises people's interest uh, and did so during that drought. Um, but it, it, what it really meant in, in that context was we sort of forgot about um, um, sustainable maintenance of water and use of water. Well, that, that for, does bring us back mix. to the roads, doesn't it? Because yes, uh, because it, they, we do have a we have issues of uh, mobility, you know, uh, being able to move around. It's quite clear we do, but um, if that was the actual answer that they wanted, to, if they actually cared about moving people around the city, investments in these huge road pro, uh, projects may not be the answer. Is that what you're saying? You know, the, well, the, yeah, they should be looking a little bit more carefully at this. Well, I, th- I mean, what I'm saying and. And I'm not the only one in this, is that they're essentially self-defeating. Um, these roads basically do fill up very quickly. But public transport, um, a capable public transport system um, would be able to serve growing needs for, for many years without these these collateral this collateral damage being caused um, to the community and to the environment. Um, and the other thing to bear in mind, I think, is that in areas where public transport is poor, um, people actually spend a lot more of their uh, of their money on getting around. Um, it's quite clear that people, for example, that live in some of the areas of Melbourne that are well served by public transport, you take, um, say, parts of the city of Port Phillip or Yarra, Melbourne, City Council area itself, um, that uh, people on average um, per household have fewer cars. Cars are very expensive things to run. They may not cost as much now as they used to, but they are expensive to keep on the road from a private household point of view. Well, it's interesting you should say that because uh, it is actually going to be a huge divider and it already is a big divider Mm. between those who have cars and those who don't. Now, this huge investment on roads is purely uh, focused on uh, personal car users, but I presume also business trucks. Yes. Um, I mean, the the freight thing's an interesting question as well. I I don't know if you recall it in relation to the... uh, Westgate Tunnel Project. Yeah, I do. Um, that was, was all uh, about freight. Yeah, that's right. And uh, there were there were people, as I recall, that appeared before that inquiry that were very critical of this project as a as a proposed solution uh, for the, the freight transport question. And um, one of the SOPs that was actually presented by the government was um, to invite. Uh, corporations who are interested in running um, a rail service into the port of Melbourne to provide for containerised freight to go on rail uh, to come forward with proposals for that. Um, I mean, most of the big cities around the world that have got large ports um, and efficient transport systems have good rail services for freight. We have nothing of the sort. We used to. I was going to uh, say we used to. You can see yeah, the lines. That, oh, yeah. Thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but by and large, what we've got now is these, what I described as these old trucks that are spurting pollution into the air. Which is another being, issue altogether. We, we, have yeah. to, we have to wind up, okay. uh, Ian. But thanks very mm. much for having a yarn with us and giving yeah. us some food for thought. 
no, no trouble at all. And I think it's something that people should really be bearing in mind uh, in the lead-up to the November 24 election um, because we're really being very badly served both by the government and by the opposition at the moment uh, in basically running this pro-roads agenda. Thanks very much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. A weak solidarity brekkie team listener when, remember after the media clamoured lasciviously as former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations Macalia Kosh the Workers Organisational Love Child, the deregister evil union's commission on its first ever case raided a union office over a matter years and years ago when Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition worked there, and the media just happened to be there to record just how evil the unions and Little Billy were. And Macalia said it was not a political stunt, because the government would never waste um, public money on political stunts. And the deregister evil unions commission was not itself a political stunt, because it was a recommendation of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Smash Evil Union's Trillion Dollar Commission, which was also not a political stunt. And what could be more independent than the Smash the Evil Union's Commission? Macalia said she had no idea how the media could have possibly known about the raid five times she denied her office or she knew anything, did anything outdoing Peter, whom the dear baby Jesus said would deny him three times, and Caesar, and thrice did he refuse. Did this in Caesar seem ambition? But it turned out the media had been alerted by Macalia's office, but not as a political stunt. And Macalia said she knew nothing about her staff spending the day making sure the media were there, and she didn't even know there was going to be a raid, and her staff must have been too busy organising the not-a-political-stunt to tell her, after all, she'd only asked for her absolutely, totally independent love child to investigate the years-ago political donations as the most urgent crime in the whole country before she disappeared behind a white board like a magic act, and now the union, and we could never call the AWU an evil union, now the union has subpoenaed poor Macalia to turn up and explain what she did know. Macalia, who has denied knowing anything, and on one level we can believe that, but surely they don't think she might not be telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but... And she says she'll tear up the subpoena. She's so annoyed because the union move is nothing more than a political stunt. And how that must upset Macalia and the government. They know a political stunt is, hypothetically say, by elections on the very day, weeks and weeks and weeks away, when your opposition is holding its national conference or... Oh, of course, I just remembered that. That did happen, didn't it? But if the Socialist Party had done that, it would have been a political stunt. But we know the government of Big Supremo, Malcolm Tanabul and Macalia did it. So obviously it was not a political stunt. Just a happy little coincidence. Macalia, of course, is now titled Minister for Jobs, and perhaps there's one in particular she should be worried about. Speaking of little Billy and the Socialist Conference, the very name Socialist guarantees it will make the destruction of capitalism its major objective, the Socialist Objective. OK, it got rid of the Socialist Objective years ago at the famous Terrigal Conference, left of left treasurer Jim Cairns lighting the bonfire, but that doesn't make it any less dangerous, any less a clever ruse. 
case we could call it a political stunt to put the great exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all off their guard by thinking the Socialist Party hasn't got a socialist objective and how Machiavellian of the Socialist Party to keep giving it that impression. And the week after the State Socialist Party here gagged debate on treating asylum seekers with just a little humanity, gagged in part by a so-called left union, little Billy said he was not afraid to debate bringing a little humanity into refugee policy because he knew he had the numbers to prevent these goody-goody black armband lots succeeding in bringing a little humanity into refugee policy and thereby costing him trillions of votes. Little Billy knowing that humanity is a no-no if you want to win. And it's important to win, so you can bring a little humanity into the lives of no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. Except if you do bring a little humanity, you will break an election promise not to bring a little humanity, and the electorate will turn against you, and you won't get re-elected. So you can do something about asylum seekers, except if you do... Politics is so complicated, isn't it? But then little Billy does have a streak of humanity in his policy. As he says, he would work harder than the government to find a country somewhere, anywhere, other than true blue Aussie, to accept our responsibilities. See, that's the difference between the socialists and the cold-hearted, caring business class lot. Just to complete that item, our earlier quote, did this in Caesar seem ambition? The next line is, ambition should be made of sterner stuff. So can't imagine why I raised that, thinking of little Billy. Speaking of Caesar, the gentle art of stabbing in the back maintains its proud history, with that dynamic leader of one-notion democracy, that appalling Hoonsun, announcing she had been stabbed in the back by one of her own just because she changed her don't-tax-the-filthy-rich policy 103 times and counting without consulting him, but then revealing a commendable burst of self-awareness, telling us, people are sick of politicians because they do nothing. Didn't think you had that much self-awareness in you, uh, that appalling, but congratulations. And Caesar also reminds us that Socialist Party long, long, long-term backbencher Michael Dunn-by-Fax compared China to the Kaiser circa World War I as he extended his global concerns beyond his beloved Zion to tell us we must hate the Chinese Communist Party. That must be because his distressed capitalist China is not really communist and we must oppose any attempt by China to block access for our commercial shipping in the South South China Sea, he warned us. And how dare those sceptics point out to Dunbar facts that the only true blue Aussie ships using the South China Sea are heading to China and back. Michael was last seen dancing painfully on one foot, having shot himself in the other. Not sure if that's better than being stabbed in the back or not. That Socialist Party conference here dropped its Machiavellian guard and supported evil workers by threatening severe penalties for wage theft and murdering workers, prompting all the usual suspect chambers of profits to scream that this was going far, far too far. After all, current laws covered all this, and there was no such thing as wage theft anyway, just a lot of inadvertent underpaying. Thankfully for caring employers, they never managed to inadvertently overpay. Pure luck there, and when workers are murdered and injured, the law should be changed 
to prevent co-workers taking unprotected action, stopping work while the bodies are cleared out of the way. And anyway, spokesperson Innes Bloated pointed out, it was outrageous for a government to expect the great corporate sector to provide jobs and employ people and then have to pay them as well. The government wants it always, he led the chorus. Why does that remind us of US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, after Donald's letter to the bloke with the funny haircut, as we reported last week, said the meeting was off, and it was all Kim's fault. And then the consistency continued, and Donald said the meeting was on again, unless it wasn't on again, and said he'd never said it was off, and how could anyone get that impression from his letter, fake news, just because the letter said it was off? But we'll see what happens. And so we're maintaining a we'll see what happens watch at one minute intervals. And in the past hour, the meeting has been off 26 times and on 34 times, with Donald denying he'd ever said it was off 26 times and musing, we'll see what happens 34 times. Now, we were hoping to conduct an interview with former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Big Supremo Barnacle about his $150,000 deal with one of those deeply, deeply in-depth so-called current affairs programs for the brain dead, an ideal outlet for Barnacle's plea for privacy in which the baby is odds-on to make the most sense. But after asking Barnacle what his privacy is worth, my privacy is worth everything to me. Everything, Barnacle. Everything. Up to 150 big ones. We ran into trouble. Uh, but you're taking advantage of me. How much are you paying me for this interview? Uh, don't follow. Nothing, nothing. It's just a routine interview with a politician. That's it, then. That's it. No more questions. So that was that. We didn't get too far on our 3CR budget. But can I suggest, because it's like a breath of fresh air to have Barnacle back in the news, that we conduct a special radiothon over and above the one starting Monday to raise a fund allowing us to continue benefiting from Barnacle's thoughts. Thoughts? Oh, I'm not sure it should be plural. Finally, must confess that at the time of recording this nonsense yesterday, I hadn't heard the result of the lowest of low-paid case, but I'm, a, I'm prepared to bet that whatever caring employers, the sundry chambers of profits will predict the end of the world as we know it, that the time is not right for such crippling impediments on caring employers just trying to create employment when this decision will cost jobs. And it's heartwarming that their every thought is with the lowest of low paid who will be hurt by getting more money. One thought of our own, though, which the caring employers would tell us just when the time is right for lazy, avaricious workers to get a pay rise, because evil unions never pick the right time. Good morning. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we do know what the result was for the minimum wage case, and we've got Don Sutherland on the line to have a chat about it. G'day, Don. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, Annie, and it's lovely to be back with you. Hello to all your listeners. Yes. Well, there was a $0.64 cents increase per hour for the lowest paid workers coming out of the Fair Work Commission on Friday. What are your thoughts? Well, I think my first thought is that uh, there is a very interesting backdrop to that, and I would like to come back to the uh, decision uh, shortly. 
But we need to keep in mind that at the beginning of last week, the other big announcement was the Financial Review's annual report on how the very rich are going. That is, its report on the uh, wealth status of the 200 rich listers. And your listeners might be interested to know and to share about with everybody who uh, they know that the 200 rich listers in the previous 12 months added $49.6 billion to their collective wealth. Oh, my God. Which is a full 21% increase. And uh, there's a really good summary of all of it. Now, we're talking about wealth there, not uh, wages and other incomes. But, of course, wealth uh, starts from having increases in income, no matter what form it is, Uh, except that there's 200 or so, probably somewhat less than 1% of the population who are scoring extremely well, uh, probably in the income stakes as well as the wealth stakes. At the same time, it was confirmed that our Prime Minister is the highest paid country leader in the Western developed countries at $528,000 a year. Now, that's about 10 times the average wage. And Well, uh, well it leads one to wonder about the uh, value for money, doesn't it? <laughs> Well, that's, that's another question as well uh, that is a very valid question. Um, it was uh, He scored that $527,000 plus some extras uh, out of a 2% pay rise awarded by the Remuneration Tribunal, which is their special version of the annual wage review panel that is the Fair Work Commission. Um, the... Uh, well, you should compare that. You, you should compare that with the. Uh, 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 it's believed that lowest-paid workers will get one thousand two hundred dollars more per year out of this increase per of sixty-four cents per hour. Yep, it was. A, it, you can compare that with what it was, which was a ten thousand dollars pay jump for the prime minister. Uh, so you're right. He's on Struggle Street, that man. Yeah, it's, it's really on Struggle Struggle Street, and it puts him in a very, very comfortable position to cast judgment on the efforts of unions to win pay increases for all Australian workers. But just to complete my thoughts on the backdrop, well, I can hardly complete them. There are many others. We also learn that the chief executives of the top 100 companies on the Australian Stock Exchange got a jump of 3.5% in both 2015-16 and 2016-17. and So they're doing bloody well also. They're so uh, greedy, and, aren't they? They're so greedy. Uh, well, it's, it, it's greedy, but, well, you need to pay them because otherwise if you didn't pay them extremely well, then you'd get all sorts of people who are on, you know, willing to take a lower pay cut who didn't know what they were doing. Uh, and so you're, 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 this is the logic, of course. Is, is that irony? Logic. Is that irony? Uh, well, you're sorry, did not come. It, it was meant to come across as irony. I'm sorry if it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, mixed up in all this, we learned something. Also, have reinforced for us about. 
the associated inequality of power, not just inequality in incomes and wealth. When we learn that uh, the AMWU delegates who are part of the leadership of the struggle at Longford with UGL Lexon travelled to the United States, to Dallas, to attend the Exxon shareholders' meeting, where they were expecting and they hoped that they would be able to ask questions of the CEO and the board about their dispute. Well, they were excluded. The board, uh, in their in their exercise of power, naked power, banned them from being able to attend, uh, go into the meeting, even though they would have had the credentials to do so, and to ask and get answers to questions. Um, so there we have naked power protecting itself from those who have engaged in a struggle against it. Now, for, for those for those people out there, Don, for those people out there, uh, and I, I probably wouldn't count them as listeners to this program, but the people out there who believe that uh, they've got to take uh, the pain because the people who are in charge know what they're doing, probably need to wake up. Yes. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people who I think have not yet been convinced thoroughly enough that the Change the Rules campaign is a critical one for the future of 90% of Australians. And uh, the Change the Rules... I think the interesting thing at the moment is that the, we are seeing that the rules in Australian society are broken in so many different fronts the rules around the federal budget and the system of taxation and spending are broken. The rules about how the parliament actually operates are broken. The rules about the management of climate change are broken. This is, these are very desperate issues, and one could go on. The rules associated with uh, the lives of our first Australians, the First Nations people of Australia... They are broken, and we can go on and on. There are so many interacting broken rules that uh, unless there is stronger engagement by masses of people, then the situation for our children and their children is going to be extremely desperate, and their struggle, they are going to have to escalate their struggle when their time comes. Now, this... uh, uh uh, wage increase, slight wage increase that came out of the Fair Work Commission on Friday uh, was uh, the ACTU's uh, representations to that commission was about uh, all full-time working people in Australia should have a living wage. Uh, I don't think it's been achieved. No, that that's correct. And... Um the, when the ACTU formulated its claim, it said that its objective was to restore a living wage for all workers, not just full-time workers, but the equivalent of what would be a living wage for those workers who were engaged in part-time and other forms of work also. So uh, just by way of recap, and we have discussed this before, the annual wage review is a requirement of the Fair Work Act 
the way in which the annual wage review is conducted by the Fair Work Commission, because it is required to do so every year, handing down a decision before June the 30th every year. And therefore, the parties, principally, but not exclusively, the unions led by the ACTU on the one hand, and five or six important employer organisations start putting forward their submissions about what the annual wage review increase should or should not be in about November, December of each year. Now, I'll just add that in this year, as well as the ACTU, another body has put forward a very credible submission for an annual wage increase, uh, but does not have the same clout or effect and that is the Australian Catholic Council for Employment Relations. Oh, that's interesting. And I mention them because some readers might be interested in following through. Their submissions to the Fair Work Commission Annual Wage Review Panel are very interesting. In particular, I think their more recent submission after the budget and before this decision does a very good job at dealing with the relationship between wages and taxation from the point of view of workers. I can't, we haven't got time to go into that in any more detail, and I don't have all in front of me, but I think it's worth mentioning that although the ACTU goes to bat for all workers, whether or not they are members of unions, there at least is one other credible body that is in there having a strong say for workers as well. I would not normally want to promote uh, the Catholic Church in Australia. They, they are in the doghouse and they should be for all the reasons that we're familiar with. But uh, it but is interesting that they've done this But uh, because uh, after the uh, announcement, Sally McManus uh, put forward the notion that actually the ACTU was the only organisation that went into bat for the workers, which uh, is slightly uh, ch- uh, changed by what you just said. Yeah, I, I think that's. I mean, I think that's a valid thing to say, really, because the ACQ is the only organisation that potentially can bring effective clout to the uh, process in the annual wage review, and that's certainly true. Uh, the, uh, the, the there is a sense in which the Fair Work Commission annual wage review panel cannot ignore. Uh, an AC2U move, whatever the claim may be from one year to the next. And whereas I think it's more likely that they can dismiss, as they actually do in their decision, the, the ideas put forward by the Catholic Council for Employment Relations. Uh, Speaking to some workers after the event, I was told that, uh, to quote, uh, that they thought it was peanuts and it's not enough. Uh, the uh, uh, Sally McManus uh, said that uh, if uh, the ACTU hadn't made its submissions, that uh, it would have been even less, uh, but agreed that it wasn't enough. So, what's where do you stand on this? What's well, your view? Uh, well, I think both of those statements are correct. Firstly, it's not enough to uh, uh, to get to the position of a living wage. 
the $50 a week claim of the ACTU would have been a big, if it was achieved, would have been a much bigger step towards a living wage. But if I remember correctly, to get to a living wage level for workers on the minimum rates, we would have to win a $72 claim. Now, the reason why it's not enough, I think, is in significant part because of a very, very poor campaign on the national wage case run by the Australian unions. And here I am not talking about any particular individual, and I'll make it clear I am not talking about Sally McManus uh, being poor on this front. I think this is a situation that is created by very inadequate leadership in a number of the big unions in, uh, who are a part of the ACTU. Not all of them. One or two have made a genuine effort to try and build something more than just polite submissions. So the first thing is that, of course, this increase, which is a 3.5% increase, is only made possible for workers because of the efforts of the ACTU predominantly. Secondly, it's not adequate to get us closer to the objective of a living wage for all workers at the minimum wage levels. The third thing to remember about this decision is that, and this is in favour, once again, in favour of the efforts of uh, the ACTU submission, the submission itself, not the strategy, I'm very critical of the strategy, but the submission itself has, is not just for those who are actually at the minimum rate, which are about 1.5% of the workforce, it is reported, but also it, it connects directly to 2.3 million plus workers who are on the minimum rates in their awards. In other words, it's not just about the minimum rate of pay, it's about the minimum rates for each different type of classification or job in each of the 122 awards. Now, if, for example, uh, the minimum rate for, say, a skilled worker in an award is around $25, and that's the minimum rate in the award, well, that goes up by the 3.5%. Whereas at the absolute minimum rate is back at around $19 now. So this is a very big decision, but constructed on a very poor strategy. Now, it's interesting that you should say that for the minimum people on minimum wage, that for them to have a livable wage would be seventy four dollars, and what they were given was yeah, well thereabouts. You know, so it's about that's the rule of thumb around that amount. But what they got was about twenty five. Uh, that really tells you something about the level of exploitation that's going on in this country. Yes. Uh, it, it does. Uh, I think the uh, there is actually they don't actually call it exploitation in the commission's decision. Well, itself. why would they? But, but, no, well, they, they give it another name. But they what, do, what do they call it? it? Well, what's what's the nice word called, for it? Fat, 
it is called the factor shares of income going to wages and to profits. Yeah, yeah. Okay, exploitation. And and that's what exploitation is. The rate of exploitation is uh, the the total amount going to profits relative to that going to wages. And what we know is that the average rate of exploitation in Australia is increasing. Now, that's the average. That means there must be workers who are being exploited less than others and uh, some that are being exploited at a hyper rate of exploitation. And that's what we have when we're talking about wage theft. That is, those employers who in their business model deliberately, and a minority probably out of ignorance rather than deliberately, pay less less than the statutory minimum rate of wages. And, and I'll jump in here and say business model. Take, get that into your head. This is their business model. Yes. They construct their business on the basis they intend to pay workers below the legal minimum rate. And then there's this bleating that uh, they shouldn't be charged. They shouldn't, and they shouldn't be charged for that, and they shouldn't be made accountable for it. That's exactly, correct. that it's not illegal, and that there shouldn't be a prison sentence. And there, yes, and there's a crossover with uh, the issue of franchising that we won't have time to go into today. That those two things connect as well. Now, the interesting thing about the point you make about exploitation is that I think that, that, that there are two serious problems with the way in which uh, uh, the the change the rules uh, uh, framework is developed. Is firstly that I think we have a complete failure of strategy when it comes to the national wage case. The reason for that is that essentially the union leaders constructed an approach mind you, a very good submission, in my view, that is the material they put in front of the Fair Work Commission was very strong. But there was no pressure put on the Commission to pay serious attention from the point of view of workers. It was a polite process. The uh, economists and other industrial club apparatchiks from the employers and the unions appear in front of the Commission and they politely present the argument, here they are obeying the rules that they say are broken. There is no element of defiance at all. That means we are less likely to get anything better than what we got, which is not enough. What we know for sure is that if we abide by the rules, we are not going to get what workers need, which is a much bigger increase in step towards a minimum wage. Well, this now, is the, I mean, this is the same uh, order of business that has uh, put a cap on wages in the public service, which they're selling off at a, a vast rate at 2%, while they themselves are, you know, garnering 3.5%. I mean, ludicrous. Yes. uh, 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 The whole One of the things I think that the ACTU does say very well in its wages blueprint that was released in April in the lead-up to this very good, I think, 
on the whole uh, developments through May where we've had an escalation of the uh, Change the Rules campaign and perhaps more about that before we finish. But, uh, yes, one of the things that they say in both the wages blueprint and the jobs you can count on blueprint is that the government has to be its own... It must practice what is needed itself, uh, both in regard to wages and to jobs. So if the government is driving down wages and also making uh, making the public service employment, direct employment, uh, much less than it should be in favour of contracting out work, then we are going to have more people driven towards the poverty line. So, Which one assumes think, is their intention, and, and of course that is their intention. To because then you have, and I'll use somewhat different language. Then you have an increased availability of a reserve army of precarious or unemployed workers, <sighs> and that has the effect of keeping of of a downward a disciplining of the labour force that is in work to keep them more compliant and less likely to fight strongly for wages and other important uh, demands. They're a disgrace. Uh, this government is a disgrace. Well, it's not just the government. This is, uh, the, government is, the government is doing what it, it needs to do out of its loyalty to the employing class. And the employing class, notwithstanding big increases in profits across most parts of the economy uh, do have a problem in some parts of being able to increase profitability. Well, that's the, the starting uh, point. Yeah, well, that's exactly. the downside of capitalism, isn't it? Exactly. And the role of government in that sense is to do what this government is doing, is to make workers work in such a way and pay for it in such a way or not uh, through lower wages, to rescue that system from its own problem, from its own creation. Don, we have to finish so, it there. I'm sorry. We've come to the end of our conversation. It's a, th- a thoroughly riveting conversation, I'll have to say. And we haven't really properly dealt with how the ACTU at the moment is failing to understand and educate its members and the broader workforce about what exploitation is. And we should talk about that properly, or maybe you could get Humphrey McQueen to have another shot at that. Mm-hmm. We have different rates of exploit. All workers are exploited, but there are different rates of exploitation. Well, the modern workers' work union movement has to wake up to is that if you have, if all workers are exploited and there are different rates of exploitation, that has very serious implications for strategy. Well, I'll tell you what, Don. We'll, we'll talk on Radiothon show the 16th of June and uh, you can uh, pick up the conversation then. I'd love to do that and I hope all goes well and that all the preparations are falling in place for a successful Radiothon. Thanks, mate. Lovely to be back with you and all the best to everybody.
Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. And as I said to Don, we are coming to the. We've come to the end of the show. We went down to Walker Street, uh, Northcote, for the rally for public housing last Saturday. There's going to be another one at Grom Place, Brunswick West, at 2 p.m. today. That's G R O double N Place. It's near Albion Street. Uh, be down there to uh, show your support. Uh, we went on to talk about the road systems uh, in Melbourne and uh, then we went on to the minimum wage case. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with Stand Strong by Kutcher Edwards. Tomorrow is the last day of Reconciliation Week. Uh, Mabo Day on Sunday. Uh, some celebrations down at Fed Square at 12pm. I see Daring to dream My destiny So much sorrow Heartache we have As we comfort our children they shed a tear We must Stand strong Stand tall When your back's against the wall Gotta look deep within yourself Gotta rise above it all When no one's there to comfort you Gotta push your fears aside Rely on your inner strength Find a sense of It's not in vain We must look to our elders To ease all the pain For tomorrow is near And we must stand as one Together united We must stand strong, stand tall When your back's against the wall Gotta look deep within yourself Gotta rise above it all When no one's there to comfort you Gotta push your fears aside Rely on your inner strength Find the... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.